So yeah, uh, let me give you just a few little things. Um, as I was preparing for this, there was a, a few different dynamics in place because I do teach this uh, in as an aspect of the communication theory course that I teach at Spurgeon College. So I don't tell students this is what you have to believe. I do actually say this is a theory that's out there. And actually then in my class, we actually take time refuting many of the problems with critical theory. So my specialty is, of course, in communication. I, David and I both have master's degrees in communication. So uh, I teach communication theory, persuasion and rhetoric, public speaking, and informal logic and reasoning at Spurgeon College. So the way that I really connect with this is when my uh, when I was doing work on my master's in communication, it was the first time I was introduced to critical theory. And we studied some critical theorists and some critical race theorists. I thought, you know, I'm at Missouri State University, I'll never have to deal with this again. Then in my master's thesis, I actually did apply some of the critical the, uh, critical theory research methods to my master's thesis. Yes, sir? Define what critical theory is. Going to jump into that right away. So that is an amazingly important thing. So here's kind of the way that I want to do this. And I hope this isn't too small. Tried to use a decent size font. But my explanation tonight is going to be what is critical theory? Because you get to critical race theory from critical theory. Then what is intersectionality? And really why should we care? And uh, I won't spend as much time talking about social justice, but I'm going to show you how we get into essentially what we would call modern day social justice movement, particularly within the Southern Baptist Convention, because that's where it really is the most impactful for each and every one of us. So uh, I'm going to try to answer that fourth question or lay the framework for answering that fourth question, why we should care, by, of course, trying to give you a good understanding of what critical theory is, what critical race race theory is and intersectionality. So you should be able to walk away with those three things. Why are those three things so important? Well, it impacts us in 2019 when we have a resolution. If you look on Google and you get to the sbc.net, you can see the resolution, and we'll talk about it a little bit here tonight, the resolution on uh, critical race theory and intersectionality. And just in case you didn't know, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention embraced those as analytical tools, which is a little bit of a, um, catch, I don't know if I want to say catch-22, but it's, uh, it's a, to me anyways, it is a slippery slope to get on. And uh, that actually, the way that they described that was something that those who have written on Marxism and uh those types of things actually would use that type of language. So the first thing I want you to know is this. Uh, not everybody in here needs to read the canon of critical race theory. And by that, I mean this. Many times when you'll talk to someone who wants to engage you about critical theory, someone who's in the social justice movement, they'll begin laying out all these different books. Well, have you read James Cohen? Have you read... Uh, Michel Foucault? Have you read Jacques Derrida? Have you read Julia Wood? Have you read Sandra Harding? 
I'm not going to give you a bunch of quotations from those folks because I actually don't think that we need to deal with all those different theorists directly before we jump into it. So if anyone ever disqualifies you from talking about this because you haven't read those, I would tell you that that's not something that you need to worry about. You need to know essentially what the definition is and where we go. So let's start with this first one. What is critical theory? Because that was the question that was asked to me right away. And I forgot your first name again. Perry. Perry. Perry, what is critical theory? Well, the term critical theory originates uh, essentially from a group of German scholars known as the Frankfurt oh, School. The <laughs> uh, shortly after World War One and right up to World War II, a group of German intellectuals got together and they began to research in what is called the uh, Institute of Social Research at Frankfurt University. Uh, and what they began to do was try to unpack the teachings of Karl Marx specifically, and they would expand his theories and try to ascertain uh, essentially how Marxist theory found its way into political, economic, and social change. In other words, how could Marxism bring about social, political, and economic change? We want to test these theories and we want to discuss them and, and say, here's what it looks like when we actually get to apply these things correctly. Now, real quick, my discipline is in communication. So here's something that needs to be well understood about how people talk about critical theory, critical race theory, intersectionality. Um, critical theory just doesn't find itself in communication or political science or economics uh, or psychology or sociology. Uh, critical theory... It flushes itself out and becomes a whole aspect of all these different disciplines. In other words, you would have the critical theorist view of economics, the critical theorist view of government. Uh, how does each of those different facets or different aspects of critical theory, how does it play out when applied to those different disciplines? Uh, in other words, how does sociology, if we look at it through a critical theorist lens, how does it tell us about social change? Uh, how does it tell us about communication? When we use critical theory as a lens for understanding communication and we apply it, to the study of communication, what are we trying to do? So uh, I'm going to basically a worldview. Bingo. Exactly. And that is the piece that I think is the key element. Critical theory is a worldview. Now, you might say, well, what is a Christian worldview? We all put on different, I say put on, we all have a different lens through which we understand the world. We are Christians. Uh, we are biblical Christians. I believe that we all affirm the doctrine of inerrancy, right? Uh, we're Southern Baptists, right? So we certainly have a mechanism by which we understand the world. What is human? And worldviews essentially ask a few different questions, right, as, as a whole. Every worldview is going to ask a pretty simple question. What is human, right? What does it mean to be human? A worldview is going to ask the question, uh, what is the uh, sum total of reality? What is everything all about, right? Likewise, they're going to ask questions, what happens after death? And what is the ultimate purpose of human beings? Now, critical theory does answer those questions. Uh, anything that answers those questions is essentially a worldview. Put it like this. We put on our worldviews like we would a pair of glasses. We see the world through the lens of our worldview. And we understand reality through the worldview that we use. So jumping back to this idea of me um, 
trying to explain to you critical theory through a communication lens. Communication theorists essentially have three different um, features that when they use critical theory, how they are saying applying critical theory to communication, there's three things that we're getting ready to do. So let me give you a very basic definition. Critical theory is questioning structures that exist in, a so in society to try to enlighten individuals on the oppressed and the oppressor. Power structures, according to critical theory, are evil. Anything that is a power structure is uh, has a domineering class needs to not only be questioned, it needs to be untoppled because there's always at the basis an oppressed and oppressor. Now, communication looks at it like this. They essentially ask three different questions, right? From the communication lens, what a communication critical scholar is basically saying is, how is control, how is language used to control people, uh, to perpetuate power imbalances? How does the words we speak keep people oppressed? And how does the oppressor use language to keep people down? Again, I'm looking at this from a communication scholar standpoint because that's the lane that I run in. That is the, uh, that's the discipline that I use. If you take what I'm teaching you on critical theory and try to broad brush with it, you, you can't really do that. But there is a very key broad brushing stroke. Critical theorists will always try to identify the oppressed and the oppressor and untopple the oppressor and try to put the oppressed in their state. The next little question that communication theorists ask is they say, essentially, we live in a society that has put a blind reliance on empirical evidence or the scientific method. So not only does language perpetuate power imbalances, we've used empirical sciences, objective truth studies to try to keep other people down. Now that sounds really silly, but that's really what it goes on to say. In other words, objective empirical scientific studies are actually a power mechanism and they shouldn't be trusted. In fact, what should be trusted instead of empirical data is people's lived experience, how they feel. So it might not matter if, and we see this in society, if you're biologically a male, how do you feel? So there is a key element of this disconnect, and you see it already being perpetuated in society. That is rooted in critical theory. Because if biological science doesn't matter, and what matters most is your feelings, then it, you can reject whatever you want. So there's this massive distrust of empirical data. In fact, within the communication discipline, what you see now more than anything, instead of me going into a culture and studying objective truths within the way people communicate, you'll ask, well, I feel. How do you feel about this? And then you present that as if it were somehow enlightening. Uh, I'm not trying to oversimplify that, but that's essentially what happens. And finally, a communication theorist is going to ask when uh, looking at critical theory, how does mass media film and uh, the internet, even social media exchanges dull individuals' sensitivity towards those who are repressed. Let me jump into just a little bit more deeper explanation of this idea about how language is used to perpetuate power imbalances. 
In other words, the argument of many critical scholars when they look at communication or those actually starting at the Frankfurt School, they would present the idea that language itself serves as a tool for oppression. Derrida or Foucault would tell you that we're trapped in a language prison. Foucault was very clear on this. He said that, ready, here's a great word for us, uh, homo normativity, right? So it is, uh, it is good for us to be homo normative, right? Or uh, we want to be, uh, if there's any type of uh, deviant culture, we keep that deviant culture away by labeling them things. So when we would say that someone who is homosexual, right, if we were to say that they were queer, Foucault would say that all we're actually doing through language is we're oppressing them. So at the point that we label someone, this is Foucault, if we label someone a pedophile, we've now push them off to the side by our language, and that idea of pedophilia being bad was only constructed because of our language. It's not really bad. And according to Foucault of the Frankfurt School, anytime we use language to label something, we've created a social structure that is pushing people to the outskirts. So... And his uh, great book, The History of Sexuality, Volume 1, was actually a history of trying to demonstrate here's how all of these deviant sexual behaviors became to be deviant. They weren't initially deviant. They're only deviant because of the way we've labeled them. So... The argument is, from these critical theorists at the beginning, language is not a freeing mechanism. It's an oppression mechanism that we're perpetuating. Now, here's what I'm saying. This is critical theory. This is not critical race theory, and this is not intersectionality, but this is the foundation for those theories. That is the foundation for your modern social justice movement idea. Language is the foundation for everything. Well, yeah, we have a God who speaks according to a Christian worldview. How can we know God told us? Yes, sir. His word. Uh, they're using their uh, feelings to come up with these cockeyed yeah. Which is based on shallow, lackluster uh, opinions. So that is that that is a key thing. In order to untopple the power structures that exist as a result of language, according to critical theorists, you need to change the language. And if you normalize the language, then you can untopple the power structures. That's how we get to that Reframing. heteronormativity. Reframing. Bingo. It's been used in counseling forever. Well, and this is where things really get another foundational piece. Roland Barthes, who was a critical theorist, wrote a little piece, an essay, which you could pull up on Google, called Death of the Author. And essentially what he says is, yeah, the critical theorists have this right. Let me expand it. There is no meaning in our words, according to Barthes. Everyone's understanding of, the what, of, of a message is what matters, not the intent of the author. That's why this death of the author. So it doesn't matter what is written or what is said. It's how you interpret it.
And if you buy into that, then you can untopple the language system because you can say something and then you can just say, well, I interpret it this way. So it provides a free ride into that. That's that idea of language being used to perpetuate power imbalances. These are the three tenets that I think are really important when it comes to communication and critical theory. The next piece would be that idea of a blind reliance on scientific method and uncritical acceptance of empirical findings. So critical theorists question the idea that empirical science's hard data is actually useful. Why? Because hard data oppresses those people who don't have that opinion. You can see this happening right now, and you probably, I'm going to introduce you to a new term today. Maybe, I forgot your first name. Chris. But maybe not Chris. Have you heard of sea lioning? Maybe. All right. I'm sorry if I've presented you with a whole bunch of new words today. Sea lioning is when, let's just say Perry, Perry, right? Perry and I get into an argument on social media. Or if we get into an argument right now. And I say, Perry, let me give you all the data on this. Let me give you peer-reviewed journal articles and research to disprove your position that the sky is green, right? You say the sky is green, let me give you all, let me show you pictures, let me give you data, let me give you studies, let me show you different shades of, of blue so you can see this. You say to me, quit sea lioning me. Quit presenting me with the empirical data. I don't want to see it, it hurts my feelings. You think that I'm joking, this is exactly what occurs. And there's a term for it, sea lioning. I don't have to listen to the empirical data, why? Because that's an oppression tool. You're oppressing me with the empirical data. But this also comes back to, yes, sir? You're saying sea lioning, is that like, like a sea lion? Like a sea lion, can sea lion. it? S-E-A. L-I-O-N. <laughs> so, so you are familiar with the term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it took me a second. There you go. Mm -hmm. Critical theorists would contend that their subjective viewpoint is greater than the data because data only reinforces privilege and power structures. Therefore, you need to question all data. Not do you question the validity of the data. See, that's a different question. If my question to a research, and I'll, I'll get just a second. If my question is, uh, Perry gives me a study, right? And I look at the study and I say, you know, I think some of your findings are suspect. That's a different idea than being skeptical of empirical data as giving me a truth claim. I'm not asking, well, are your numbers correct? I'm saying numbers are stupid. Now I'm being somewhat generalizing there. Yes, sir. Feelings, as we all know, are very transient. Yes. How do they play that into their theories? Where it changes from one moment to the next. You know, when I preach on Sunday morning, they may feel wonderful, but when they get out on Wednesday, that feeling's gone. They need some concrete to go with. Your field. So your feelings change from day to day. Your field, ex your, your felt experience within the moment is what matters. But it changes from moment to moment. Whatever the moment is. That's why you see... That's why it's transient. But you go back to the oppress and oppressor issue. Yes. Where it becomes... It is only important when the oppressed 
is, is overcome yeah. by the feel oppressed. Yeah, that's when it's an issue. Dr. James Thompson of Focus on the Family wrote a book years ago uh, called Feelings Can You Trust Them? Yeah, and I read that book and he made a very good argument that you can't trust your feelings. I mean, they fluctuate yes. all the time, like the weather, and uh, you just can't trust them. They're not reliable. But a critical theorist would look at Dobson and say, he's a white, heterosexual yeah. male. He is only reinforcing his privilege by writing a book because he has access to a printing press and has a ministry. That's the only reason that he's saying that. So he's just using his power to oppress. They're not open for any criticism at all. Well, not from you or me. Well, you see this actually in the work of the communication theorist um, Harding and Wood in what's known as standpoint theory. Now... Standpoint theory is within the tradition of critical theory. And I'm actually focusing in on this because I teach standpoint theory. It's Spurgeon, and I tell all of my students, this is my least favorite theory because I think it's wrong. And according to standpoint theory, the more oppressed you are, the more removed you are, because here's the key thing. This does kind of find its way into critical race theory, but it starts in critical theory uh, the more oppressed you are, the better idea you have on what's going on, according to standpoint theory. So, according to standpoint theory as well, which is, a, a, which is a, basically a stepchild of critical theory. We'll get into critical race theory, I haven't got there yet. But according to standpoint theory, the dominant culture in the world is white, heterosexual, Christian males. We are unable, according to standpoint theory, we're unable to have a real good view of what's going on because we will only seek to defend our privilege all at every cost. We can't really know or analyze things because we have too much skin in the game. Therefore, to critically analyze reality is only for us to try to defend our privilege, and we're unable to do that. The only people who can really analyze culture are those who are the most oppressed. That are not white males. Got that right. If, if, if white Anglo-Saxon Christian males are the predominant culture, it's, has this guy taken a look at the demographics of the world? Harding and Wood would say, it doesn't matter about the number, it matters about the power. Power, yeah. And power is defined essentially by influence and ability to oppress. Now, again, historically, that's crazy, right? We all know that Mao killed more than we've ever killed, except for our murder of the unborn, which However, we are still not there. There's actually. enough truth to that to give them a little validity, because the white man in this country, at least, has been the history has been the leader yes and then there are some that still want to be the leader uh, i won't say who but uh, the fact <laughs> remains there is a prominent thing that's in the news that we see some of that occurring and so they they attack that and make it a big picture for everybody well, and jumping back to the second contention Blind reliance on scientific method and uncritical acceptance of empirical findings. That sounds crazy. 
but critical theorists would say the majority of the time the oppressed have been historically left out of published research and empirical studies because they don't have access to the education systems by which empirical data is created, collected, and distributed. That was discussed in the 1816 project that's brought up right now. Ah, there you go. Yeah. This goes to the third one, and so you're still saying, man, you're still just on critical, <laughs> you're still just on critical theory. If you don't understand the foundation, you're having, you'll have problems. And I've tried to make it simple by giving you, again, just these three pieces. You'll see some people tell you that there's more functions of critical theory. Sometimes they're, they're generally not communication uh, scholars or those in the communication field. The third one is the role of mass media in dulling the sensitivity to repression. Essentially, critical theorists see cultural industries such as television, film, music, print media as reproducing the ideology of the dominant culture. Go back 30 years. You hardly ever saw on television someone who was a homosexual character. Remember the first homosexual character you saw? Ellen DeGeneres, right? I didn't see that. I just remember when it happened. Every year, Glad, uh, and I should have given you all of, I forgot all the, uh, what the acronym actually means, uh, but Glad has a report every year about how many homosexuals, LGBTQ+, whatever spectrum, are on television in places uh, that are, of course, uh, uh, places uh, in those shows, right? So the report analyzes the overall diversity of primetime scripted series regulars on broadcast networks and looks at the number of LGBTQ plus characters on cable networks and streaming services. It reports each year on this amount of individuals in major roles in films and television shows. So to push off oppression, these oppressed groups have tried to infiltrate the cultural tools or the rhetorical artifacts of the culture. It's not a mistake that on your favorite television show there was some type of homosexual encounter or, or something else uh, that was done as a counter piece to try to stop the perpetuation of heteronormativity. Does that make sense? How did this happen? How did this, did they convince? The Frankfurt the School. What? The Frankfurt School. They influenced Hollywood, influenced Hollywood and the music and so forth? Yes, sir. But they're, are they still in existence? No, work? they're at Frankfurt School. They're all okay. dead. But, yes, but their teachings on cultural Marxism and how to change culture was we need to push off the oppressed. How do we change the culture? Well, we stop the blind reliance on scientific empirical data. We use language against the culture. We dull people's senses to deviant sexual behavior because all of those mechanisms were only reproducing what what existed they didn't do too well against adolf hitler did they no they they left they left they left they ended yeah they left he closed them down right yeah that's why it ended their end was his rise that's where they all shot off They, they went to other countries 
That's why Derrida gave his speech at John Hopkins University after World War II. I can't give you the exact date, right? And if you go to, go for it, sir, yes? I'm just going to say, you can see how number three works in the fact that you, you take the last 20 years and the, the entertainment industry's focus on um, inserting um, particularly the whole LGBT spectrum into primetime television, the fact that while what last I saw, 4% mm -hmm. of the American population would classify itself in the LGBT spectrum, and yet, if you ask a typical millennium or a Gen Zer, yeah, yeah, they would tell you, well, it's like a third or more yeah. of people in the United States are in that spectrum. <clears throat> That's been the success of number three in promoting this idea that well, they're all around us. It's an intentional application of the mere exposure effect. What are a culture's mechanisms for keeping things normal. How do we compare ourselves to what is normal? So critical theorists were right. Media becomes the mechanism by which we gauge what is normal. Right? So how do you, what do you, how do you see this? I, who's on Facebook here? Who's on Facebook? All right, so we got my wife is, I'm not. Okay. Yeah. So I'll bet you that if I said, okay, what happened when you had a grandchild or, a, or a, a child who graduated? What did you do? You took a picture and you shared it on Facebook. How did you know to do that? You saw other people do that. How do you normalize, what is normalized activity, right? You act as a mirror of culture. But culture is slowly being changed by individuals who desire to overturn power structures. That's how this works, right? You know, yeah, go for it. Well, you know, I heard this week on, on the radio while I was just running an errand uh, that 10 years ago, there was one clinic in the United States that helped facilitate a person's attempt to change gender. 10 years later now, there are 50 of these in the United States. They went from one to 50 in 10 years. Yes, sir. This is a booming business. Yes, sir. Experiencing mega growth. And, 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 and this editorial comment was about how many of our young people are questioning whether they really are a male or a female. Yes. And, and there's something going on that's causing all this questioning because when I grew up, I don't remember any social media questioning that. Social media. And I, I'm, and I'm not joking about social media. I'll bet you now if I said, who has TikTok here? Who has TikTok? Now, you said you had a college-age daughter, is that right? Okay, so I've got an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old, right? We took them off of TikTok. <laughs> and, and our reason for that was because on TikTok, which is another form of social media, there's all of this ready, very deviant sexual behavior that's being normalized. Uh, just about a month ago, might be two months ago, Netflix, who has Netflix here? Streaming video service. Heard about it. Yeah, they had a show called Cuties. Mm -hmm. Guess what the show was about? It was about 10, 11, 12 year old girls yeah. trying to 
illicit sex from adult males by the way that they were behaving. That's how it gets normalized. You, you see how that works. This is out of China, isn't it, TikTok? I have no cl- I don't. I don't know anything about it except our son is not allowed to have it and neither is our daughter. Sorry. TikTok's out of China, right? Yeah, they were. I heard that Trump was going to shut it down or something. They're trying to. Well, there was on the news today. Target has been in trouble because they banned a book and then they unbanned a book. Yeah, it had to do with that. Critical of young girls going through um, sex change, um, either chemically or, or or physically. And the woman, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but the woman who wrote the book, um, very critical of this trend. Um, in American life, she, she was basically saying that you know, if you're an adult, you you have every right to decide what you want to do, including mutilating your body. But you've got 13, 14 year old teenage girls wanting to do this, and she was talking about the dangers of it. Well, Target was carrying the book; yeah, they got pressured, <coughs> excuse me, to ban it. And then when they banned it, they got a huge kickback or not kickback, but blowback from banning the book. So now it's unbanned, so it's just... <laughs> well, the state of Washington will allow a 15-year-old girl go in and get the uh, uh, hormones for a male without permission from her parents and can, in five years, destroy her reproductive capabilities and everything of that sort, and a 15-year-old can make that decision? That's, that's where we're at in that part of the world. Yeah, and then I'm going to jump into more specifically critical race theory. And David, be sure that I don't abuse time. Oh, I don't we, want to be the... normally go till about 9 o'clock. Okay, so. I don't want to be the guy who just <laughs> goes on and on, never, sh- never shuts up. Yes? This started from a Germans who was trying to see how a Marxist view could be applied. Bingo. David said that it's a worldview. Yes. Um, is this critical view a Marxist view? No. It is not a Marxist view. Just like other social movements or even worldviews, it is derived from Marxist principles. As you all, you know, we have just a basic understanding of, of Marx, right? What was he about? Well, he was about the regular working class person overtoppling or creating social chains so that there could be basically and just I'm equal. yes equality for paradise for everyone and how do you create paradise for everyone we have to overturn power structures worked great for those folks in Russia oh that's right so far so here's what the what these philosophers basically said we're going to have bloodless revolutions there's a means by which we can get bloodless revolutions. So we'll still be able to overturn the power structures, but we'll do so through other mechanisms. And uh, forgive me if I'm kind of painting with broad, broad brush strokes here, but to call it a Marxist theory would be wrong. Was it rooted in Marxist ideas? Yes. But if you want to shut down the conversation, just say, oh, critical theory, that's just a Marxist, godless Worldview. Actually, you can say no. Critical theory is a worldview. 
it does answer basic worldview questions. And again, there are a great list of basic worldview questions. I can point you to Rob Phillips. He's got a great presentation on what is a worldview. In fact, I even use one of his papers in one of my classes that I teach, right? Uh, but worldviews answer questions. What is man? What happens after death? What's the ultimate means of, what's the ultimate end of man? Like basically, what, what are we supposed to accomplish? You know, what is meaning? Uh, what's everything about? I mean, simply put, those types of questions are answered by our worldview. Critical theory answers those questions. What is man? Well, according to this principle, critical theory, man is a oppressed piece of protoplasm who needs to be unoppressed, right? What's everything about? Well, perpetuating your species, right? What's meaning? Whatever you want to have meaning. What happens after death? Well, the computer shuts down, right? These are questions that it, that it answers, right? Just simply put, that's the way to test is that's a worldview. Does it answer these questions or offer an answer to these questions? All right, so let me jump into just critical race theory. So for, if I go too quick or go too slow, whip me if I go too slow, uh, then if I'm going too fast, you know, slow me down. <laughs> so what is critical race theory? Not critical theory, what is critical race theory? Well, Kimberly Crenshaw is one of the founding scholars of critical race theory. And she gives us a real nice definition. She says that critical race theory is the practice of seeing how the fiction of race has been transformed into concrete racial inequalities. She goes on to note that critical race theory is an approach to grappling with history, the history of white supremacy that rejects the belief that what's in the past is in the past and that the laws and systems that grow from the past are detached from it. Put simply, critical race theory is the grandchild, or you could say the child even, of critical theory, but it keys in on race itself. And what Crenshaw and other critical race theorists would say is, yes, there is oppressed and oppressor, and we see it in racial oppression. Now, the other foundational element to these folks is race is a social construct we only, say a social construct, we've socially created racial differences, right? They're really not there, we've just created them. But then after we created them, we tried to reinforce whatever race was better to stay on top. Here's the issue though with critical race theory. The argument isn't that your race is wrong. The argument is that you've created structures that perpetuate your oppressor mentality. And it's impossible for the oppressed to get out of the oppressed position because of the structures that you've created. How would we go about this? Well, you've heard if we can't, now. If we can't get out of it, why should we worry about it? That's where you get the systemic racism. So we all thought, okay. we all, and I believe rightfully so, Defund the police. Sounds like a stupid, stupid idea. But are you ready? That's critical race theory. Why? Yes, it is. Because the argument is that white males created the civil laws and those who reinforce the civil laws. So if you have a black policeman, he's just a pawn 
of the laws that were created structurally by the oppressor. He's an Uncle Tom. That's one way to say it. But, I mean, there's also a little bit of slightly different. He is actually still a victim. He's a white man. Well, he's a victim of the oppressed situation, and he just doesn't know it. Oh, well. Yeah, no, no. I, I, no. Being I, used I understand what you're saying. The system. Bingo. So that's why you have to do away with the police, because the system is wrong. Mm-hmm. That's really put in his place. Great question. I have no clue. That's not something. Do they not have a clue either? I guess they want so. I mean, I guess they want so social workers. They're experimenting. BLM has a specific idea, but it's more. The rioters that broke in last night. So, so how how do they deal with the children of whether it's a a black um, sports figure or a black politician? Who that that black child has grown up in in privilege? That's where you're.